Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Whether it's applauding the drone bombing of an Iranian general or treating something that happens all the time, like a migrant caravan, as a singularly significant or pretentious event, the news is always on. 24-hour cable news networks, websites that add new content at least once an hour, and social media feeds constantly scream for your attention. As Greg Jackson explains in his essay for the January issue of Harper's Magazine, that endlessness doesn't just flatten meaning, but is premised on an outright lie. Not everything that gets covered is truly important. The news media, a for-profit industry that continues to choose entertainment over the reality of people's lives, shapes our understanding of the world around us, even if we think we've unplugged. I was joined by Jackson to discuss his thoughtful piece and consider possible ways to move away from the addled state of Twitter or the news ticker. You quote at length from media theorist Neil Postman, who wrote, quote, entertainment is the supra ideology of all discourse on television, end quote. And there certainly Postman was not the only person making these sorts of critiques of television and the news. So could you talk about Postman's work and other theorists like him? Yeah, so Postman was basically a media critic and uh, media theorist sort of in the post-war era. He taught at NYU for a long time and started their media ecology program, which is sort of like media studies, or early version of media studies. Um, and really, I think through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, he was writing a lot about education, media, and technology. And the two books that I love are Amusing Ourselves to Death and Technopoly, both of which are really excellent books. And um, I've read some of his others too. And Ultimately, I did teach a class at the University of Virginia about maybe not quite 10 years ago, 2011, 2012, when I was getting into some of these questions around media. And so it was partly on Neil Postman. It was partly on David Foster Wallace. And it also grew out of experiences I had had working in journalism and just starting to think about questions of how these forms and formats and conventions of media actually start shaping what sorts of messages we get, what sorts of representations of the world we get, and end up structuring what we just sort of naively experience as content. The thing about Postman, I think, at least this is my read on him, is that basically he was a he was a disciple of some sort of Marshall McLuhan. He was mm. a McLuhanist, and he sort of took what McLuhan had done, which was these sort of oracular, almost mystical pronouncements about media that were very prescient, but also kind of, you know, elevated. They frequently were drawing on Finnegan's Wake and King Lear to make their case. And he essentially took what McLuhan had been saying and adapted it to, um, in a more rigorous way, to the kind of cultural world that we had in those moments in the 70s and 80s. And But his central idea, I think, is very similar in some ways to McLuhan's, which is that the format and forms and structures of technology, of media, of how we have a conversation has more of an impact on what conversation we have in many ways and the content that we think we're experiencing. Right. And you mentioned that you worked in journalism. So I guess what is your background with the news and how did that influence how you wrote this piece? I'm primarily a fiction writer now, and I knew I wanted to be a fiction writer for most of my life, but I did have a job in my 20s about 
little more than 10 years ago, I worked in political journalism uh, or on the periphery of it in DC. I worked for an investigative journalist who was writing books about the war on terror and the White House. Uh, his name was Ron Suskind. I worked on a few books with him and that really opened my eyes to uh, the world on the ground of what things are like in DC, what's happening in the actual political process, but also gave me an idea of how what's happening in that world that's sort of, you know, a somewhat artificial social world, but where things are actually happening, how that gets sort of translated by media and by storytelling and narrative into a form that then we experience as the news or as the kind of cultural story of what's happening at the present moment. So I got interested in that question from having that sort of not quite front row, but maybe second row seat <laughs> to a lot of what was going on. Um, and then I think it's very natural as a fiction writer, as somebody who's interested in artifice and representations and how different versions of reality or different representations of reality arise from the conventions and norms and forms of a given uh, artistic medium. You know, you, you start to apply that same framework to things that we take of as just sort of in some way less mediated and more directly in connection with reality, like the news of the day. And you start to see that it actually shares a lot of the same properties with art and with just the sort of narrative structures and narrative strategies by which we tell stories inevitably. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking with a friend earlier today about the Iowa caucuses, and he had worked on the Obama campaign in 08 in Iowa. And he wrote a book recently, and he was going back and looking at all this coverage and like, just seeing how completely different conversations about identity were then. And he cited this interview that Obama did on 60 Minutes where the interviewer said, some people say that you're not black enough, which is, you know, you cringe now. But of course, in the present media environment, people act like, oh, Trump invented some people say that blah, blah, blah. But these things, this language gets into not just how we perceive the world, but it gets into how we are framing the world and thinking about the world and like, the rhetorical strategies of the news are everywhere, but we sometimes can't see it because they present themselves as invisible, right? Yeah, totally. I think that there's, you know, a big question that the news is sort of answering for us or teaching us about, but we don't really realize it, is that it's teaching us what is, what are reasonable questions to ask? What are things that are important to be discussing or to know about? What are the language that we can use to ask those questions? What's the realm of reasonable opinion in a given historical moment? And we're educated in a sort of slightly semi-conscious way into all of this by our news consumption. And, you know, I think this is, I think I touch on this in the piece, but I think it's one thing if I were to go back, I might have or write a new piece. I might look at a little more strongly is that I think one of the ways in which we fall into a little bit of a trap by talking about kind of truth versus uh, falsity or responsible news versus propaganda or um, all of these things that sort of pit truth against lie is that we mistake that a lot of what we're experiencing in any sort of media platform or any sort of media experience isn't really truth or lie. It's a whole kind of worldview of what is important, what's going on, what we should be thinking about, how we should be thinking about it, what other people are thinking about it. And that worldview in many ways, I think, is more of our experience of uh, a lot of our 
times that we plug into the news or listen to NPR or go to the New York Times, it's not that we worry that they're telling us something false, but we know that there's a particular idea of what the world is that we're going to get. And that's a huge part of what the experience is, maybe even the predominant experience. And maybe that's one reason why people choose different news outlets. It's not, you know, some people are always fleeing facts and some people are looking for facts. It's that people want to inhabit stories that make them feel like, you know, they belong in that world um, or that that's the world that they want to believe in. Right. You know, if you look at the New York Times homepage, so much of it is opinion. I mean, the opinion stuff is right up top. And I thought something that was really brilliant in your piece was that you talk about how an opinion can serve as the action because news is it just it's coming at you. And you can kind of trick yourself into thinking that, oh, well, I'm doing something proactive by watching the news. I'm staying abreast of what's happening in the world. I know what's important, but that's not always the case. An opinion can kind of substantiate an ideology or a worldview or just, you know, the world's going to hell. Everything is great. It seems like political discourse today has become so centered around ideology that many people, you know, even those reading your diagnosis might wonder what an alternative to ideology in the news would look like. And you call this education. Could you talk a bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot to say about it. We all recognize, I think, that children can't just be left to their own devices, that there's something we call education that that cultivates in them certain skills and abilities. Those are uh, cognitive, but also maybe practical. It also teaches them to look at the difference between what you want in a given moment and what you might want later on, or not just what you want to do, but what you want to have done. This sort of guidance is trying to essentially empower people. And we recognize that even though it's an incredibly indirect way to a economic end or of, of creating, you know, economically productive citizens, it's, you know, hugely indirect. We recognize that it really enriches us and that it involves teaching people to, you know, be able to make decisions that, uh, be able to make authentic decisions that are really their own and not just decisions that are responding to kind of culture that's always coming at them or not just decisions that are arising from their kind of, our kind of more primordial or primal emotional states. So what would ideology or what's the difference between ideology and education? I think it's good to like take a practical example in some sense. If you want to build a bridge or you want to build a house or you want to code a computer program or you want to compose a piece of music, you can't just believe whatever you want to believe and go about that. If you don't actually know what you're doing, the bridge will fall down, the house maybe will collapse, the program won't work. Um, I don't know, the song will be atonal. So there's some mechanism of getting something right that's keeping you honest in some way that's keeping is making sure if you're getting things wrong you need to learn more you need to um mm-hmm. adjust and correct for your mistakes i think what ideology is is it's a realm it operates in a realm where that's never going to happen where there's never going to be a reality check or a feedback mechanism that's going to make you have to reevaluate or confront your mistakes and in fact ideology maybe even goes a step further which is when you're just dealing with information that exists in a hypothetical or virtual realm information that's used to have little debates online debate with your friends to write posts 
it's actually much handier to have a kind of ideological framework, like a little almost like informational arsenal or a kind of informational martial arts that some people <laughs> have, I think, uh, specialized in, you know, people maybe like Ben Shapiro or something, but to have a kind of interlocking set of semi-coherent kind of worldview with, with data points and ideas to back it up, this is a really really great toolkit in a realm where conceptual questions are just going to stay in the conceptual realm. If we're bringing any of this into the practical realm of, you know, we need to accomplish something, how do we accomplish it? We might have something that pushes against just the desire to believe kind of hermetic and self-consistent, but essentially untethered sets of facts or worldviews. Mm -hmm. And the news media has managed to sort of shift the focus away from its fundamental grift as therapy, as entertainment, as a sense of keeping up to date with what is important, a sense of doing something toward the problem of new media. So, you know, the, the place where people really get to practice their ideological jujitsu uh, <laughs> in the comments section. Why do you feel like that shift took place? And do you feel like it's just out of self-preservation for the, you know, traditional media to be like, oh, well, we're not doing that, even though they kind of are. Right. So you're saying basically that old media is sort of laying the problem at the feet of new media instead of looking at actually the parts or dynamics of their own uh, practice and business model that maybe preceded it and that actually feed into some of these exactly, problems. Exactly, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I think that's a really interesting question. And I, I think there is a side of it that's totally right. I mean, one distinction that I think is important to make is that new media, to some extent, have really taken a huge toll on the news business and the industry. And those business pressures are not independent of some of the things we're talking about. They put, I think, way more pressure on winning market share, on uh, getting attention. And this leads to, I think, going further down that path of entertainment, sort of sensationalism, or even just sort of this complete coverage where it's just this unbroken story that you're never supposed to leave because there's always more <laughs> content to attach you to. Yeah. Um, it's like a TV show that never ends. There's just, you can binge it forever. Um, you know, I'm hesitant to say that old media is sort of um, trying to run a, you know, scam or, or, <laughs> or, you know, actively trying to distract from the problems. But I do think, you know, before we had new media, we still had the, um, sort of disintegration or branching of news and opinion, the branching of uh, different outlets into partisan, through partisan filters. We had news as entertainment. And the real question to me is in sort of a for-profit business model where that's the key thing determining the news, you know, the news has to essentially connect us to more of itself and it always has to keep us engaged. I think information that's really useful to us or meaningful to us which I think the news aspires at its best to be, I think it should connect us back to our life. Instead, the news always connects us to more news. Yes, the never-ending TV show, the never-ending feed. But yeah, I totally I agree with what you're saying. It's not disingenuous to point out these things. However, they're, they're clear antecedents. They're inherited. Like, it's just part of the format, right? Totally. Because our brains our brains work in a, you know, the the scroll is just, catnip for our little monkey brains we just can't yeah, exactly we <laughs> can't no and uh i don't feel like necessarily i can either um <laughs> although i try but i think one other part of it is just what's what's really tricky and what's problematic is that the news industry or the news business is the 
these are the people and these are the places we turn for guidance and help about how to deal with problems that we're experiencing. And essentially, if they can't tell us that, that they're the problem or that the answer might be to turn away or turn them off or do something else, then there's a fundamental problem. It's not that, uh, I don't think anyone's being sort of evil or disingenuous in this. It's just that that's the thing that can't be said is that actually, you know, maybe, maybe you should, you know, put this down, go outside, stop reading. The only thing that can be said is the solution to the problem that you're experiencing with your, with the news is going to be solved through the news with more news and with us analyzing, explaining and breaking down the problems of the news. Mm -hmm. And I want to go back to this question of, marketability because in the first the first wave of journalism when there were first newspapers being published and disseminated the idea of impartiality sort of came about as a way to better sell ads because if you have this aura of impartiality you can say oh well we're not really this way or that way so if you feel that way we can still you can still advertise with us it's fine but of course outlets are totally biased but they they were not totally biased there's degrees <laughs> there's we have to leave some room for nuance yes. damn it um but you know there is this attempt to sort of subsidize serious and sober news and serious and sober journalists who talk in a reassuring, not monotone tone, but a way that's like, I'm not telling you how to feel about this. <laughs> um, uh, so leaving aside the fact that people have to do work of some sort to survive, do you think it's ethically conscionable to do the work of a journalist today, given that most, you know, like speaking truth to power uh, stories are still propping up a medium whose overall effect is to make audiences complacent. I think that's such a hard question. It's very hard, partly because we're all, to some degree or another, enmeshed in and implicated in a kind of, you know, a system that gives us certain incentives and, and kind of pr cross pressures us in different ways. There are things that obviously do well from a business perspective and get attention or likes or make money that, you know, are not necessarily good for uh, the culture or society as a whole. And where do you draw the line? How do you negotiate your own principles and morals vis-a-vis -vis your companies, vis-a-vis -vis an idea of the greater good? You know, this is not something any of us can address on our own. I don't think mm -hmm. so. We're all so beholden to uh, so many forces that are larger than us and that can make the kind of idealistic pronouncement about how things should be just seems so out of touch and ridiculously, you know, unmoored from reality. But it is obviously the case that many short-term economic decisions are not actually very good long-term economic decisions. That's just from an economic standpoint. And so we all, I think, have a responsibility in some way to think about um, how can we make what being good at our jobs means, um, the ways that we excel in our jobs, how can we make that also in line with what's good for a culture or a society? I think, you know, it's very clear to us that being a really good doctor, probably being a really good doctor also is really good for society. Um, and, you know, I think that's the paradigm we want to have across as much of the uh, much work as we do as possible. So I'm really not going to say anyone 
is doing anything conscionable or unconscionable. I think we all have a responsibility in this. I think it's just that the media or the news media are such orchestrators of the conversation of what we should be doing and what can happen or should happen or what people's capacity to affect change is that then that has to be turned back in some way upon themselves because they're sort of leading the discussion. Absolutely. And the the media has seriously undermined its credibility with things like coming out in favor of the Iraq war, saying that, oh, you know what? Actually, it's good that Suleimani was drone bombed for no real reason. Uh, it's it's a good thing. And these these clear, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to get all manufacturing consent <laughs> here, but we now live in a time where you can get alternative resources or alternative criticism to be like, hey, this is not this is not a reliable way to interpret these events. This is not a responsible way to report these events. And I think this gets to something that's really excellent about your essay, and it has to do with the form where you're not pretending to teach us something. You just remind us of something we already know, that there is a problem with the news, but we might have forgotten. So how did you arrive at the form of this essay? And were you drawing on any writers in particular to structure it? Well, the form is uh, a series of theses, or at least that's how it's set up. And that was partly tongue-in-cheek based on Walter Benjamin's famous theses on a philosophy of history. And I decided to call it theses on a philosophy of news, not necessarily because it has anything much to do with Benjamin, but just because I liked that format. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I was trying in many ways to grapple with these issues and trying to figure out how to write a piece that gave us at least, I don't know, a possibility of stepping back and looking at a kind of larger whole and seeing how different parts interacted with one another. And I think it became difficult to think about, as I was trying to do that in a more linear fashion, how to do it. And it felt like a slightly more mosaic quality where you're looking at smaller points and trying to let them build into into a larger whole that felt like a way to just look at a slightly broader set of kind of interlocking gears than I think I felt able to writing more linearly and maybe more so than I'd seen in other pieces. Um, I feel like there was another aspect to your question though, but now I'm sort of forgetting. Oh, I mean, just so you're talking about Benny Mean as sort of like this inspiration for the structure and right. and like how it's less about teaching somebody something and reminding them of what we already know. Right, right, right. I mean, I think there is in the kind of paradigm of education versus just information or information versus knowledge. I do think that there's a kind of similarity that you can see sometimes in types of writing or types of art, which is whether something is just trying to kind of in a passive way confer uh, a kind of ocean of information or thought or fact on you um, that you sort of receive, or if something is trying to, you know, help you think for yourself, help you develop your own thoughts, is sort of encouraging uh, the process of thinking rather than just conveying or conferring information. I mean, I think this is like the classic idea of or debate around, you know, teaching for the test and standardized tests versus Mm -hmm other sorts of teaching in school, you know, teaching for the test can often just mean drilling into people a type of information they need to know. Whereas teaching in many ways is not actually giving people information. It's modeling different ways that people might think or go about thinking or might enjoy thinking or find productive. And I think if you can do that in art or writing, I I do think that maybe that gives 
the reader or the audience something more tangible to go away with. Um, but I think it also asks more of them. And so I think oftentimes it's can be less, uh, kind of just less fun experience. Um, but, you know, and I don't mean to say like that I know that I've succeeded in this or not, but I do even have the experience a lot of times when I think I'm learning a lot because I'm getting a lot of information of not really coming away with that much, or at least even like a few hours or a few days later, wondering how much I really retained. I thought I learned something very interesting. And part of that is because different experiences involve you differently. And if you're really not involved that much, if you're really just sort of passive receptivity, it doesn't get in very deep. It's a very shallow experience. But if it involves you because it asks something of you and asks you to participate in it, I think it gets in more deeply and it changes you, hopefully. Right. Yeah. It's not just a question of attention or being interested in something. It's this engagement and, again, this crucial exchange between ourselves and the the object, right? And that, and that relates to art at large, of totally. course. Yeah. And so I guess I wanted to close with you're a fiction writer, and it seems undeniable that the career of a writer today also takes place in the constant cycle of pseudo-events, which could be anything from people are mad at Billie Eilish to <laughs> Lizzo said something funny to Trump misspelled a word again, like all these, these pseudo-events, but we are constantly bombarded and reminded of them. And for a fiction writer, there's you know, the book launch, the review, the profile, the award, the podcast interview. But at least you could argue that this is all in service of promoting art, which, as you write, is different from entertainment because, again, it's asking something of its audience. Do you see art as being more sheltered from this entertain or fail sort of imperative that we live in now where everyone sort of has to market themselves? Or do some of the same contradictions apply? Well, definitely some of the same contradictions apply. You know, I haven't been on that many podcasts, but I do think a lot about what prominence or what degree I should be participating in a kind of additional discussion or additional content around things I write. And, uh, you know, I worry constantly that if I pursue certain avenues to you know, generate more content or build more attention around me and my work that I might be actually contributing to some of what I am skeptical of. So it's a delicate balance I need to eat. And, uh, you know, I probably have shot myself in the foot many times by (laughs) not uh, doing certain things or engaging online in certain ways. But I also just feel like I feel so grateful for the attention that I get, I want to really put a ton of energy and effort into the things I do that I put forward in the world, essentially saying in some sense, I think maybe this is worth your attention. So I like to keep my footprint relatively small and substantive if possible, but I am, you know, I don't know how long I can maintain that. I don't know that I have the fortitude to say no if, uh, you know, this kind of monster of publicity consumes me. And I think that while art itself, if it's good and successful, does escape some of what you're describing, the apparatus around it about how it's marketed, how it exists in um, the kind of cultural discussion is exactly like the sorts of things we're talking about. And it's really hard to separate the two. At some point, you know, art itself will fall prey to 
you know, the same logic of marketing and marketing buzz and celebrity that it maybe to some extent it already has. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I, I just want to bring up because I thought about this recently, I just started noticing, and this drives me crazy, all these people I like who have books coming out keep telling me, you know, on podcasts or in person or in emails, you know, you have to pre- please pre-order this. You have to pre-order this. Pre-orders are so important now mm-hmm. for books to come up on people's screens and to get mentioned in all of this. And there's something so strange to me about this logic. It's just saying, you know, you haven't read this book, but I need your help creating a kind of viral moment around it that has nothing to do with whether or not you really think it's a book that you read and cherish and love and then want to move on. It's just, you know, there is a kind of social, uh, a network, um, what's it called? Network effect. And we have kind of this moment to go viral or not. And I need your help because you are in my corner as a friend or more likely a follower. Uh, I'm a sort of celebrity who you feel some identity attachment to, and I need your help to create this kind of buzz that has nothing to do with the underlying thing. And so that's the sort of way in which I think the marketing apparatus, the celebrity culture around art can subsume the art itself because at some point something is famous just for being famous and it's popular just for being popular. And it will crowd out other things that people might pay attention to, or I don't know, it remains to be seen how much I or anyone can really resist these things. But, um, you know, I do hope to strike some balance and maybe just resist a little bit. Yeah. No, I I mean, do you feel like this, this necessity of PR and this necessity of numbers, which again is driven by the internet where, you know, you can measure how long someone is on a webpage, you can see how many people visited, you can see this and people think that clicks are dollars and they're not. So that's sort of (laughs) the, the, the self perpetuating falsity of stuff like social media of web analytics do you see that going away at some point do do you think we can kind of back ourselves out of this corner i mean i really don't know i think it's it speaks to uh deep drives and desires and and appetites within us and it's much harder to make conscious decisions against uh unconscious appetites than it is just to kind of give into those appetites. I mean, I think the only hope is whether, and and I think the jury's out, whether we believe that culture itself, cultural discussions and the norms that they create can create different values that work against um, more kind of primal or inborn drives just to, for stimulation, for engagement, for things that make us happy, give us dopamine hits or uh, make us enraged. You know, I don't know if the culture can... um, can find a way to create a set of values that allow us to kind of turn off or move away from this kind of constant total noise. You know, I like to think that there are other things people should be spending their attention on and that a lot of the stuff that we're talking about is trying to monopolize attention. And we, I think as people who create some sort of content, some sort of art, some sort of discourse, should really be um, respectful of people's attention. And that means saying at some point, you know what, you probably have heard enough of me. Uh, <laughs> I hope like I get, you know, five or 10 hours of your life in a given year when you want to read and think about my book or my article, that would be great. But like, if you're paying more attention to me than that, it's too much. You should go outside, <laughs> go to a park. You should like do something with a friend. You should build something. You should do your own thing. And like, I am not here to get you to be 
you know, watching me on Facebook or listening to me all day, every day for, for your life. Like that doesn't respect you. And, and ultimately, you know, I want to feel like I'm giving something that actually (laughs) matters and that wants to be received and that you're happy at the end, not just that you got in the moment, but that afterwards you think that was worth, you know, a little bit of my time. I'm glad I did that. Well, thank you very much. This was, um, edifying. (laughs) Thank you so much, Violet. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 